is time to start yet another season of Out of the Main. Wow. Season four. Season four. Hmm. I didn't even know if we'd get to episode four. <laughs> but here we are. Uh, should be another action-packed season. I remember sitting here at this point last year promising great uh, guests and stuff that we thought we had lined up, and we ended up pulling through. That was cool. Yeah, we had... Um I think some of those were actually lined up at the time. Yeah. We teased them, but the, a lot of it was just faith that uh, <laughs> yeah, they'd come through. It would come through. And we have the same for this upcoming season. Yep. Yeah. But uh, I'm not going to tease them this time, just in case they don't come through. In case they don't. Right. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah, well, we're older and we're wiser now. Uh, yeah, we are older. Yep. So here we are, starting season four. We have a couple uh, new additions, a tweak that we'll get to on the lightning round. Yeah. Um, but we are starting season four. Kind of, I guess, where it all begins and ends with Yacht Rock, and that is Jeff Porcaro. And we've already covered him once. We detailed, uh, kind of went through the highlights of his the book that was written about him. And that was a different take on what we're doing today. So today's more of um, an analysis and or celebration of his playing. Artist appreciation episode. Yeah, that's a better way of looking at it. And we're kind of going to come at it probably from a different tack than... Most people do. I don't think we're actually, I don't want to, you know, ride in someone else's wake here. So we're going to carve a fresh wake. Wow. The yes. first pun of the season. Hey. I love right. it. All right. And it was a double. Yeah. There's dust on that bell, I see. All right. Not for long, though. No. no. Let's dive in. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so how are we going to do this? If we're not following other people's wake, that's usually what I do. Well, I'd started by putting together a Percaro hit list. I'd. This actually goes way back to even last season. We talked about doing a list of at least maybe my favorite uh, Jeff Percaro grooves. And I had this list going and I kept adding to it and taking away as I saw stuff. Or And then we were going to possibly delve into it at the end of the season there when we were clearing the decks. But we thought maybe there was enough meat there that we could make something of an episode out of it. So I kind of went back in. Um, reinvested myself in the list that I had as well as just kind of brainstormed some new things. And I came up with what I think is sort of a different approach than the usual way people kind of analyze Jeff Percaro because so much is written about his groove, his chops, his feel. Uh, we talked about how he intentionally places the two and four of the snare drum couple of milliseconds behind the beat. So a lot of those are technical issues that we've already covered. Mm -hmm. This is going to be more about Jeff as a thinker, the cerebral side of what he did, the thought process and things that he would do before he even started playing the drums. Hmm. Pre-production, if you will. Yeah. And uh, that, that's most of my appreciation for him comes in the form of, wow, he had to think of that. And then he did it. Yeah. Um, so the obvious ones when I was making the hit list are, you know, people talk about Rosanna all the time. I've talked about Jojo ad nauseum. Uh, Lowdown is another one that gets talked about because of the two hi-hat parts, the original one that went down when he played the drum kit, as well as then the overdubbed a second one. Mm -hmm. uh, Keep Forgetting mm. from Michael McDonald. That's one that's often brought up. All the Toto stuff, of course. 
but um, we needed to mention those, but those aren't the ones I'm going to focus on. Although there's going to be a theme from Keep Forgetting that I just come to appreciate that will probably, I'm going to guess, be a recurring theme, and that's the stuff that he saved for the uh, for the fade. For the fade. Particularly the kick drum work. Kick drum fills. Yes. Yeah, he did that in uh, Hold the Line as well. That's exactly. Another, that's the first place I heard it. I'm like, yep. who would think of that? Going back to yeah. thinking this thing through. Yep, exactly. Well, where are you taking us? Uh, what's the first port of call? Yeah. Ah, yes. <laughs> well, the the one that was always the top on my list for not only uh, this intelligence thing I'm talking about, but also feel. I can't get over how good his feel is on George Benson's Lady Love Me One More Time. And it even has a parenthetical title. <laughs> yes, it does. So before you turn and walk away, just let me love you one more time. Feel your heartbeat close to mine. So what he's done on this one is that at the end of each chorus, there's these little tag kicks that they do. And each time they come up, he treats them differently. And where it comes into the pre-production part of it is that they're also locked in with the bass. The bass player on this one was Nathan East. Mm -hmm. So some sort of conversation between at least those two, if not larger within the arrangement of the song, some sort of conversation had to happen beforehand to decide how they were going to treat these kicks because each time that happens as i said it's a little bit different so the first one here is very subtle second time it comes around jeff adds these uh syncopated hi-hat pinches and the timing of the hits is also different And then when we get to the third one, it's sort of a variation on those two combined. They sort of extend that section, and he kind of revisits those, but different. So we now we have a third variation. This doesn't happen accidentally. So... Somewhere along the line, he's deciding, hey, let's do this here. Let's do that there. And let's make it different each time to keep it fresh for the listener. So, and I wonder, you know, we always hear so much about how the Toto session guys were like one or two takes is really all they needed. But yeah. I want, something like that, you have to rehearse, right? Unless you're just that good. Well, they were that good. I wonder. But even though maybe they... You know, they go through the arrangement and they, they decide, hey, let's do this one there, this one there, this one there. And they maybe nail it. On that next take. But going back to your original point, at uh, 349 of this song, speaking of those hi-hat pinches, he says, a little nugget for the fade. Hit him. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's I'm always waiting for that. Even before you brought that up in this episode, I've always wait for that part of the song. Yeah, what's he going to do on the fade? Well, you said we weren't going to go into it, but just for the sake of my own little appreciation, can we do the... Uh, the kick drum fills at the end of keep forgetting because he'd also had to coordinate with what the bass player on that tune, which was Lewis Johnson, Correct. how he was going to mimic it. And I got to have an appreciation for this. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's just so cool. <laughs> but you know what I never noticed like way back in the day that I notice all the time now? Um, uh, Johnson is actually doing a version of his bass line throughout the song. And then it mirrors up with, mm-hmm. so you can listen for that next yeah. time. Yep. Well, that's cool. So very good. And then I think we're going to go, is that it for uh, Lady Love Me parentheses one more time, close parents? Yes, because it kind of attaches in a little ways to this next tune. Which is what, I, and this is my all-time favorite Jeff Picaro track. Okay, well, this is Dwayne Ford, Loving and Losing You, a little more of a rock. Now, this one has a lot of those same kind of uh, kicks and hi-hat pinches like we had in that last one. And the the, the one spot that jumps out to me, there's so many in this song, uh, but the thing that jumps out to me is during this intro that there's this power chord hit that comes in, and where you'd expect that to be right on the downbeat, they move it. Yes. One half, you know, the and of one. So an mm-hmm. eighth note after one. And it's so unexpected. But again, it had to be planned because Jeff's hitting it along with the guitar. Check this out. So, again, you had to have some conversation and decision ahead of time. We're not going to hit this like everyone expects us to on right. one. We're going to hit it one and. And again, it- Probably not overly rehearsed, but if that was my band trying to pull that off, we'd go through that like for a half a day. <laughs> and then the next day you come back, you'd forget it. Forget it. You know, I just, one thing that I thought was interesting about this track that I think is uncharacteristic of Picaro is even though he has the chops, which we've detailed, he usually likes to sit in the background. Mm-hmm. And in this song, he takes it a very aggressive posture with drum fills like this. Now it's... There, it looks like he wants to be a little bit, or he wants the drums to be in the spotlight, which is, I think, atypical for him. Yeah, generally he uh, he does. And I've got a few of those in here where he does. He intentionally sits into the background so that that stuff jumps out. Yes, that's great, right. But this song, point. yeah, this is a little more of a rocker and they attack it um, right from the get-go, really. Yes, they do. Well, uh, a, a little different take now, moving into sort of um, just subtle side. We come to the him working in the adult contemporary area with uh, Barbara Streisand. We've talked about this song once, but uh, called uh, Come Rain or Come Shine, or just Come Rain or Shine. And I just thought that it was really interesting when we get to the solo section. So this is about two minutes, 20 seconds into the song. Just paying attention to suddenly the amount of work that he puts in on the ride symbol, which again, he hasn't really touched throughout the song and then it speaks here. Yeah, it's on that bell, kind of, right? Yeah, and it, it just lifts the groove. It totally at that does. Point. Yep. Um, which is something that he also revisits again in the big. Uh, Yachty uh, tune by Valerie Carter, ringing doorbells in the rain. He then, this one's more of a reggae feel. So you don't hear Jeff taking on the reggae feel very often. But this one has a bit of a reggae feel. And then when we get to the 
spot in the song where the lyric talks about ringing doorbells. Mm-hmm. He goes to that ride symbol, the bell of the ride, to get that ding on the offbeat each time. Just highlighting that lyric. A very clever but subtle little nuance. On the Ringing doorbells. Yes, sir. Uh, Yes, again, that goes to the cerebral approach of Carl. Fun fact about that song. Yes. It appears on my (laughs) Halloween on the Yacht playlist. (laughs) Because it's often rainy out here in the Midwest. We're ringing doorbells. There you Uh, go. Uh, speaking of fun facts, yeah. this you threw uh, just a curveball at I me. Bet. I was going through the notes for this, and I'm like, wait, what is this? Well, you did not know that uh, Jeff Percaro played for Pink Floyd at all? Never knew that. Okay, well, he was uh, brought in to play the drums during the wall sessions, particularly on the song Mother. Mother, do you think they'll drop the bomb? And why would that be? <laughs> well, from my understanding, I think it's kind of obvious when you listen to the song that if you really pay attention to what's going on with the time signatures, it's constantly changing. There's areas where it's in four, but they're dropping beats. There's other areas where it switches to a triplet shape, a, a sections of three. But whatever the case is, it's a very, even though it's a slow song, it's a very sophisticated song in the way all of these timing changes hit. And at least my understanding was that Nick Mason wasn't really up for it. And uh, Roger Waters decided that uh, he needed someone that could do it. And that was Jeff Percaro. It's a simple sounding song until you actually try to follow the time signature. And then you're like, what? If you just pay attention to the vocal and the melody, you don't notice any of it. But when you start paying attention to what's underneath and trying to count it, you're like, oh, well, they dropped one there. Oh, and dropped a half a beat there. Oh, I thought they added a beat at one point, too. I was like, wait, we got 5-4 now? What's going on? He doesn't even enter until like halfway into the song, like at the guitar solo. So let's hear a little of that. Uh, this is another song that uh, he's has frequent use of the uh, the bell on that the, right. The symbol. bell is there again, yeah, on that offbeat. He uses yeah. that for to kind of give a lift to the groove, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned some earlier, and this is a perfect example of how he would generally stay out of the way until it's his turn to speak. Yes. Yep. And again, this is thinking intentionally. So we highlighted this song way, way back as one of my favorite moments in Yacht Rock. I'm talking about Leo Sayers' When I Need You. I remember this conversation. And when you listen to the first half of this song, we'll let a little of it play here, but you'll notice how he was almost doing bare minimum. kick drum a little bit of side stick but he's almost not there until until <laughs> the solo section comes the instrumental section comes and it's time to build the climax to the re-entering of the vocal and just when you think it can't get any bigger than that I mean, 
that's just magic there, but it, it's it's not sitting down and saying, okay, guys, let's just, just play this. He is thinking, I need to do bare minimum for the first two minutes of this song so that the climax later can be that much more effective. Yes, and it really takes the song to an entirely different level in not only is it servicing the song, like the music part of it, but like it matches the main characters, we'll call the singer the main character, Yes, that person's emotions. It does. It's building, it's building, and then it just can't take it anymore, and that the drums is what gets you there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like I say, it gives me chills each time, and still... I'm reminded too. I had a conversation with listener Mike at one point with um, on and off again, listener Steve. Um, and we were talking about Jeff Picaro, just how amazing he is. And mm-hmm. listener Steve said, really? That Jeff Picaro from Toto? And yeah. we're like, dude, yes. yes. It's like, well, what are his famous solos? And I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> listener Mike said, that's it. He doesn't need those moments to shine. Yeah. So, not only is all of that true, but it just strikes me as something representative of this entire class of session musicians that we're always covering. Is there, unless you're into this stuff, they're so underappreciated, both from a pop music standpoint and the so even the what I would call sort of the quasi music lover, like somebody who can maybe sing a. J- Jimmy Page solo, note for note. I don't know if you know if you could do right. that. They're so sloppy, but you know what I mean. <laughs> they they know a lot about music, but they just don't get this. And I just feel like that's that's what yacht rock is categorically. It's a bunch of underappreciated, under the radar, brilliant musicianship. That's very cerebral. Yeah, as you're saying all that, I'm trying to think of one of them, if any of them, that I could say broke through and got that appreciation, at least in their time. I'm not even sure you could say that's true about Lukather. I mean, I think you could drop that name in most average music circles and they wouldn't know who you're talking about unless you said of Toto. And then they still might, oh yeah, you know, not, oh yeah, I know. And I bet if you asked a hundred rock fans, name the top 10 guitar players of all time, I bet his name wouldn't come up. Never come up. He would be top five for me, for sure. Yeah, easy. Oh, and so would Jay Graydon, by the way. I know. Well, there's a name. They wouldn't even know that. <laughs> exactly. You would even say that, and then you'd, they'd say, well, who did he play for? And you'd say, well, Airplay. And they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> or you, you pull out one of those scrolls, and it goes all the way down to the floor and keeps rolling yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. All right. But I digress. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, well, as a little aside, speaking of underappreciated, did you know that uh, he was uncredited, but apparently Jeff Percaro was the drummer for Chicago on Stay the Night? <laughs> I had no idea. What's crazy about that is growing up, because the snare is so gated, I always thought that was a drum machine. I did too. Yeah. But now that I listen to it, probably through better um, fidelity nowadays, Yeah. now I can hear that it clearly is drums and being played. Yeah. And I, I listened to that song the other day with that in mind, trying to think of, okay, where can I hear... It sound like Jeff. Mm. Where can I hear that? And, and for the most part, you don't. There's an interesting little um, odd fill that goes into the second chorus. But I'm not even sure that sounds more like a Foster-ism. Like that's something that Foster told them to do than it was something that Jeff did. 
Um, but it, I did notice when you get to the guitar solo, it's kind of for a song that has that huge of a snare sound, you think of that two and four backbeat, they're just gated cannon blast. <laughs> but he drops them in, as we'll listen to here, on uh, four on the floor. So on one, two, three, and four, not just two and four. So at least there, he's taking, uh, again, a cerebral approach to how can I elevate this song for the guitar solo. The way that he, the drums and the like, the overall groove of the guitar and bass fit all together, like did it, did it, did you know? Yes. Um, I don't know if I just did that. Or not. You're talking about like the choruses. Yeah, yeah, just kind of throughout. It's like this tight groove, and everybody's together, and it feels mechanical, almost artificial. Yeah, but not yeah. when you really listen to it, it's like those are three humans doing that, and it sounds amazing. Yeah, well, let's play a chorus there because it is the the kick drum, the bass, and I think um, being doubled by like a, a single note guitar thing, playing a very sophisticated pattern while the two and four on top stays solid. Very staccato, very uh, um, very Foster, I guess. Yeah, cool. Maybe he wasn't evil after all. Maybe not. <laughs> I've really fallen in love with yeah. Along Comes a Woman, by the way. I love that song. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I wasn't expecting necessarily to spend much time on that song. That was more of a, as an aside, but it is interesting. Yes, it is. All right, well, let's get back to maybe some Toto. Yeah. Uh, again, the, the subtlety of him. And uh, when I listen to this song... This is Toto's I'll Be Over You. And when I listen to this song, even though it doesn't sound like the drums is doing that much, or the drums are doing that much, I get fascinated listening to the underbelly of the thing, particularly that's the kick drum and the bass, the way that they stay locked together. Sometimes they're playing off each other, but then they will lock in on the chorus. And just it's a fascinating listen because it goes so unnoticed i think mm. but it's also what gives this song that would otherwise be a ballad a little sense of groove and i think it's what kind of makes it yachty So this is who's the bass player at this point? Uh, that would have to be Mike Percaro. That's what I was one. thinking. Yeah, yeah. But then you know, he does. He he lays this down. He stays out of the way. He does the work of making the groove happen. And then when it's time to make his big announcement here at two twenty, it's one of those fills you can't help be air drummer on. Yeah, he has the uncanny ability to resist the urge to do more. Yeah, it's four notes yeah, really in there. Yeah, but it's perfect. It is. It is slightly, uh, did you already make this point, slightly off syncopation. You know, it's not like so straightforward. There's just mm-hmm. a little bit there. That you're like, mm, okay. Yep. yep. He, he does that a lot. Uh, a little bit of chops on this one. This is just, I. this was probably the first one that I put on the list because I think when I heard this song, it made me decide, oh, we need to cover this in some fashion. 
from the seventh one, so we're outside the Yachty years. We're in a bunch of uh, the George Massenberg produced this, and George Massenberg as a producer, at least at the time, liked big room around the drums, and that, to mm-hmm. me that doesn't fit with the Yachty sound. I, I think right. the Yachty is being cleaner and tighter. So uh, I think all that aside, this would be a very Yachty record. But when you get to the bridge. There's a lot of uh, weirdness happening here on the song called uh, Stop Loving You. Uh, you, So weird, you even got John Anderson of Yes in the background. So check this out. going on there well i'm glad i just teed that up perfectly about how he plays a few notes slightly syncopated differently than you would expect and it just has all the effect and he knows to do it a little bit different each time each one of those phrases is giving you a little something different yep uh the other one i had on my list from that album is often visited by fans of his because it's uh by his words the only time he played the actual technically correct version of the Purdy Shuffle, and that would be these chains. So by technically correct, what I mean is there's a lot of versions of that halftime shuffle, but Bernard Purdy had a very specific one where he ghosted with his snare hand on certain beats and then slightly opened the hi-hat at certain times. Mm. And so by doing all of those things within this, he was actually nodding to the actual full-on Purdy shuffle. And what was Not the- his take on it. Yeah. yeah. What was the tune on uh, Asia that Purdy played on? Played on a couple, I think. Um, Home at Last is the one where I think he did the classic shuffle. So there you go. That's the real Purdy and the Jeff wrong doing Purdy. the real Purdy. Yeah, the wrong there it Purdy. Is. The Purdy yeah. good Purdy. Yes. All right, last thing I got here, uh, another song. This one's also from the seventh one, but uh, I found a video that Jeff did. He does a, he did a lot of those uh, workshop kind of video things, mm-hmm. and a lot of those are up on YouTube. They're great watches, but one in particular that I wanted to grab was from a song also from the seventh one called Mushanga, which is oddly, it's if you listen to the lyrics, it's sort of a retelling or a clarification of the story from Africa. Really? Pretty much tells the same thing in a little bit of a different detail. Did David Page write it? Uh, probably, yeah. I guess. Um, but I've, I've taken a few segments from this video that I just kind of want to drop the audio in for. So the first thing is I got to give mad uh, props up for the uh, drum set mag jingle. Check this out. Drum set mag, 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 drum set mag. Yes. Now, was that Jeff Picaro playing that? I hope not. Yeah. Oh, boy. Anyway, he, he explains how he goes through the process of deciding what to play on this song, how he takes what would be the obvious and kind of mulls that over in his mind, 
thinks about, well, what other variations might there be? And then if I choose one of those variations, how might I add flavor to it? So he starts off and he has a couple of guys with him sort of playing the groove of uh, Mashanga so that he could demonstrate this for people. So he's got a bass player and a keyboard player. I couldn't tell if that was Mike Percaro on bass. I, I think thought it, it was. I think it was. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so here we go. We're going to listen to what the basic groove of this song would be. It's sort of a samba feel, um, but before he adds any drums to it. So then he says, well, the most obvious thing might be to just play a traditional backbeat version in regular time over this. So that would sound like this. Then he explains, well, my mind went to hearing it sort of in a halftime feel, he said, but I hear the snare instead of on two and four, I hear it happening on three, but I hear this sort of tom-tom thing leading up to this to each snare hit and now he demonstrates what that would sound like one two one two so now he's got this simple halftime feel and he says okay well, well, not, not simple <laughs> no it's not simple but <laughs> it's the basic version of it it's yep. really just the two and four and snare with the toms leading up to it and he demonstrates that against the groove with the uh bass player and keyboard player playing So now that he's got that, he explains in very geeky technical drum talk about paradiddles and paradiddles and blah, 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 and all this complicated stuff that drummers that can actually read drummer music, which probably aren't that many, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> would understand. But he has developed this sort of pattern, which he had written out and was in the book that was handed out for people to see. And so he demonstrates what this pattern looks like and he just plays it on the hi-hat so you can hear what that sounds like then he says okay if you take that pattern and you work it around the drum kit incorporating that idea of the snare drum on three for the halftime feel it would sound something like this I love that. <laughs> First of all, he's got a beat that if you were to play just on a hi-hat or just on a single drum pad, most people couldn't keep up with it. Right. Alone. Right. Then he says, let's spread it around six or seven drums. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like little splash cymbals and all that oh, stuff. So so that's how he got from the idea of them giving him this groove and he's saying, well, I could just do this, the straight beat, mm-hmm. but I'm hearing something more in a halftime, which got him to that you know, point A, then point B of how do I elaborate this? And then point C of how do I then spread it around the kit? Because going back to the, the song, Mushanga, it's a world music thing. Like we said, it's a tie mm-hmm. into Africa. So he wants to give it more of a world music feel. Feel, and the final sounds like this. Yeah, 
You don't even hear all of that nuance, really, when you're listening to it with Mixed in the Band. But no, now that you I don't know even know all the thought process that went into it. But once you get to see how he develops this idea, it's even more interesting. And that's why I agree with, with the way that you address this, is to, to appreciate Jeff Picaro is to appreciate the mental approach to constructing a song and a, and a beat and all that stuff. Yeah. Yep. Amazing stuff. Well, we could have gone for on forever probably on just, yep. well, maybe we should. Nah. nah. Let's go to a uh, new and improved parentheses, question mark, close parents. Mm. <laughs> Lightning round. There, now you got your own personal parenthetical title. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, yes. So explain, young sir. I will. Well, I'll just explain being old, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, we, it just so happens, you know, we sort of launched viewer mail in ep- uh, season two or three. We were getting a lot of submissions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the last episode of, of season three was clearing the decks because we get all this stuff built up. So yes. I thought, and you agreed, that maybe we should incorporate more of this sort of user submissions and things that we find out there on the internet yeah. as a um, regular part of Lightning Round. Yeah, and less of the rating of songs, even though we changed it to a float your boat thing. That's <laughs> not really our thing. Right. You know. Yeah, we'll let other people be mad online. Yeah. Um, so yeah, something had to give. That was it. So this is going to be not lost at sea, but get the bell ready. Found at sea. Not message in a bottle. No, no. It could be a message in a bottle. Okay. I'll give you an example. Yes. I'll start this this uh, season four new and open parent, improved, close parent, parentheses. <laughs> Don't uh, forget the question mark. Question mark. Oh, yeah. Dumb. All right. Well, you can strip that in later. All right. So here's an idea. Here's for example. Okay. Uh, found at sea was something that listener uh, Tim tweeted at us oh. uh, in response to, I can't even remember which episode it was, but it was from season three. And he said, hey, check out this tune. I, have you ever heard of Pratt and McLean? No. So apparently they were a one-hit wonder, and their one hit was doing the um, the new and no, and it was improved uh, theme to Happy Days. Remember when they went from twelve o'clock uh, yeah. rock to yeah yeah uh, Sunday Monday yeah exactly yeah, yeah. that was their hit. Okay. They have a, on, they have a nineteen seventy six album that aside from that dude is very yachty really co produced by Michael Omardian whoa. And uh, I believe this song is co-written by Michael and his wife. Is it Sunny? Stormy? Stormy. Yes, sorry. Got my uh, weather Mm. metaphors mixed up. Anyway, so so he tweeted this. I'm like, this is pretty yachty. This is found at sea. This is Pratt and McLean. What's your sign? What's your sign? What's your sign? Tell me what's your sign? What's your sign? So those are the uh, Sunday, Monday, Happy Days guys? Yeah, apparently that's the only song that they did in that wow. genre. They're wow. more, more so were like what we just heard. Yeah. So it's kind of like uh, Quiet Storm meets Yacht Rock there a little bit. Yeah, and there were some hi-hat pitches in there, which sort of makes Ugh. it relevant. But uh, just to give you an idea uh, if this album was Yachty. So yes, uh, there's a little personnel note. So I already mentioned the Obardians. Um, but we also have... Uh, Ernie Watts, mm. Ed Green was the drummer on that one. Okay. A name I see yep. every once yep. in a while. Um, Gary Grant on horns, Jay Graydon, Lee Rittenauer. Dang. Yeah, Michael Marty, which I mentioned, obviously. Uh, oh, oh yeah, v- Victor I mean, Feldman. 
Well, Mardian's bringing in, yeah, all the cats. All course. the cats. Yeah, why not? So good find from Listener Tim. So that is something that was found at sea. Whew. Got it now? Deep, deep, you deep. All right. Here's what I found at sea. This actually made the rounds a little more than I expected when I first saw it. Uh, it was a, I think I originally saw this on Twitter. Hmm. Is that new and improved? I don't know. Anyway. Um, <laughs> you forgot the parents. Uh, yeah. And the question marks. Yep. Uh, Huey Lewis has a lot of interesting posts. Um, sometimes it's Johnny Cola, the arranger, kind of remembering how he put songs together or Huey's sort of thoughts. But they're very thoughtful posts typically. But this one was... Uh, that sports, the album Sports, was one of only five number one albums in the year of 1984. So there were only five albums that went number one in 1984, and Sports was one of them. Really? Why did they hold it on Not for like 12 well, weeks or something? I, that's when, what made me curious. I had to go and kind of dig into the data on that one. So um, the reason being is that there were obviously some monster albums also in 1984. First, I wanted to know what would be the typical number of albums. And um, I'll get to that. But Footloose had been number one for 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. Purple Rain had covered 22 of the weeks. Thriller, 15 of the weeks. I was going to guess Thriller. So they're eating up most of the year there. <laughs> then there was Born in the USA, four. Only four. Surprise. And Sports, one. One week. Really? So it's kind of almost a little tongue-in-cheek, knowing if you follow Huey, you know he's got a heck of a sense of humor. Oh, he does. So it's a little tongue-in-cheek to sort of frame it that way. <laughs> yeah. He's uh, but, uh So I looked at it. In uh, 1983, only had six albums. But again, Thriller ate up like 22 of those weeks. Yep. And there were a couple other monster albums that year. There was... Uh, um, Men at Work's Business as, as Usual ate up several weeks. Uh, the Flashdance soundtrack, Synchronicity from Police ate up a bunch of weeks. So that's why there weren't that many. Did you mention No Madonna? Was it Like a Virgin in 84? Maybe not. It was earlier. Uh, no. Okay. I don't see that. But I looked at, um, so 1982, for example, had 10 different number one albums. 1985, going a year later, had 15 different number mm. one albums. So it was a bit of an anomaly to have only five albums be number one. So that was what I found at sea. Ah, so no Sonic contribution. No. Okay. Cool. All well, intelligence. Yeah, well, yes. Yes. Information anyway. Um, all right. So what do you have for a buried treasure? We're keeping buried that one. Buried treasure. This uh, ties to Jeff Percaro. I know that Jeff Percaro is credited as drummer on this song. I'm not sure how much real Jeff Percaro we're hearing, though. Hmm. I wonder how much of it is edited and how much of it is sampled because this is a Fagan tune. And uh, how much Wendell is there? How much edit? How much Jeff Percaro do we think we hear on Donald Fagan's IGY? So the song itself is not a buried treasure? No, I you just think wonder, he is the buried treasure I, I, yes, in that song. Yes, I wonder song. how yeah. buried Jeff is in this Interesting. Correct, right? Yeah. I don't hear a lot of what we talked about in this episode in that song. No, it feels like they maybe sampled and took and built the basis of it in Wendell or with edits, and then maybe there was a couple of drum fills that they plugged in that Jeff did. Yeah, so that's, that's what, what it, it sounds like. like to me. I don't know. Yep. Hmm. What's huh? your uh, buried treasure? My buried treasure is... Uh, 
Going back to David Roberts, which we did season three, we kind of talked about discovering him. So uh, the tune is Someone Like You. It's off that same album with the Boys of Autumn and all that stuff. So uh, here it is. Well, two things on this song. First, listen to how it begins. So that's... I awesome. thought you said Jeff didn't want to be flashy, or was that me that said that? Uh, One well, of us then, said that. He, then he gets into this nice little okay. soft groove. Maybe it's not a soft group, but it's more like the uh, hold the line. It's locked group. in, yeah, yeah. yeah right. uh, but then check out what he does with the kick drum at two fifteen. You oh got to drop this in too. So apropos today's topic. So there's a little rapid fire kick drum for you. All right, all right. Uh, off the map. Yes. Is that me? Yes, it is. All right. Well, I'm going to go to the man who had to fill the shoes of Jeff Picaro. Oh, please. The 1995 Toto album, Tambu. Uh-oh. What? Go ahead. <laughs> There's a song that, to me, kind of is reminiscent of Mushanga. Yeah. Anyways, it's called I Will Remember. Uh, the guy, the drummer at this point is Simon Phillips. And let's hear this one. When love makes the promise the hardest to keep, it leaves only truth here to find. When the spirit is crossed and the heart is so deep between you and I. Even when love is come and gone. So, interesting, uh... Man, do I like that song. I I thought I could escape all of our years doing this podcast without having to address the Simon Phillips catastrophe. Why? So he's just, uh, why do you say it that I don't way? like Simon Phillips at all. You don't? Well, I think he's technically, he's he, to me, he's the exact opposite. He's a technical drummer with zero feel. Yes, yeah. He well, He's very good at probably the proggy stuff, and I do not like him as a fit for Toto at all, and I, I found it difficult to listen to those years partly because of my lament for jeff but yeah i don't know well, i just don't like those, the way simon feels how do you and, fill those shoes is the question yeah, but it isn't even just that to me i don't know so i did not realize until i looked up some info on the song that this was the band's first chart hit in the uk since i won't hold you back oh i didn't know it even charted anywhere yeah oh, it did good. not chart well in the u.s but it no. was in the top i think 20 in the uk killer yeah right. and i also did not because simon's on it <laughs> yeah no i'll tell you why okay. michael mcdonald's on backup vocals oh on there that it is team. there okay. you go <laughs> keeping it yachty all right what do you have for off the map well my last uh off, or my off the map which is last on this episode is going to tie back to my buried treasure because hmm, maybe maybe people are aware of it i don't know how many people are but uh we talked about fagan's igy is the buried treasure well my off the map version is gonna be howard jones version of igy it's a bonus track from his 1993 best of hit it You know, it's it, 
mostly keeps true. It's mm-hmm. it's definitely Howard Jones, but it mostly keeps pretty true to the original sense of that original yeah. tune, I think. What year was that released? Yeah, that- well, 93 was the best of when okay. he recorded it. It sounded much newer than his other stuff, so it was probably recorded new for that release, I'm guessing. Excellent. Cool. Well, so are we going to end this episode any differently than this year? Yes, actually. How Two so? things. One okay. is I want to remind people, you talked about all the, the video work that Picaro did when he was still alive. Yeah. Even though we didn't cover Rosanna, go look for the video where he talks about how he constructed that drum. Bit. Yeah, okay. That yeah, was yeah. awesome. Uh, and then the day before we were recording this, David Page himself re- uh, posted a video of Picaro just kind of rocking it. And mm-hmm. so maybe we could play a little of that as we fade out here. And... <laughs> Oh, boy.